Welcome to the Engine Presents podcast, where I'm currently sat in the green room at the 2019 Festival of Marketing, ready to talk to Mark Ritson, Professor of Marketing, Marketing Week columnist, winner of the Business Columnist of the Year three times. He has a PhD in marketing and is well known for his outspoken views on the industry we work in. My name is James Goldhill. I'm Commercial Director here at Engine. And what I really want to talk to Mark about today is the kind of heavyweight side of marketing. How can marketing make a real difference when it comes to organisational success? Mm. Welcome, Mark. Hey, James. Nice to be here. I've looked at your schedule over the next few days. It's crazy busy. Brilliant keynote this morning. Um, so firstly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. Before we get to the meat of the interview, what is it about the Festival of Marketing that keeps bringing you back? Well, I think there's two things. I'm contracted because, you know, Marketing Week run it. And so my my ultimate bosses very cleverly made it part of my contract a few years ago to come. But beyond that, I would come anyway. I think it's in the UK, the one place where everybody comes. It's the tent pole conference. Yeah. And for that reason, I think it is a great place to catch up and see what's going on. And it's funny, I work in a couple of different countries. There tends to be one conference like this in each country. And I think this is very clearly it for our you know, professional group in the UK. And have you seen it evolve over the years? Yeah, definitely. It's, I think it's become that tentpole status has only been the last couple of years. I think just in terms of size and in terms of professionalism, it's, it's really improving. It used to be kind of, you'd get, you know, Stephen Fry would come and it was cool. Mm. But that was kind of, you know, and then it was a lot of smaller sessions. Now you've got really nice small niche sessions, but all the way up to, you know, Mark Reed's here and, you know, there's, there's the big players are here. So it's nice to see. Yeah, I think it's, it's really getting there. And the audience looked absolutely engaged when you were talking at the keynote this morning. Yeah, it so went well, I thought. It went, went really well. well. So let's go back to the beginning of marketing. For some marketers, process, strategy, research, data, analysis are infrequently used terms. Mm. And just this week, someone referenced again, marketing is the colouring in department. Mm. How do we shake off this reputation once and for all and demonstrate that we deserve to be at the top table? I'm slightly unusual in that I don't blame the other uh, representatives in the organisation. We have a tendency to, you know, blame the CFO. Some, for some reason, the CFO is the, you know, is the bastard in the mix and he, he or she doesn't respect marketing. I've never seen that. I think we fundamentally have that colouring in reputation because a lot of marketers are turned on by that. Mm. And they come to the discipline because they like logos and pantons, nothing wrong with that. But they stay kind of occupied on that and no one makes them aware that that's really a third of our job. You know, even comms, mm. tactics generally, are only a third of the job. And, and the issue for me has always been, if you spent your life as a consumer, as we all did before we came into the business, all you see of marketing is the tip of the spear that targets you. So you see the brands and the ads and the, the packaging. And so that's what you think marketing is. It's only with decent training that you realize, oh, hang on, before the tactical stuff, there's a real clear strategy, which mm. consumers aren't meant to see because it's invisible. And the strategy is built on research, which again, you don't see because it's research. So I think for me, it's, it's the coloring in department reputation is completely a facet of our own occupation with superficiality mm. and I think getting more marketers to realize that tactics are a small part of our remit is where we should start focusing our efforts. Interesting. Do you think uh, 
part of the challenge is around kind of demonstrating the benefits of marketing and reporting yeah. on marketing. And, and, you know, in some cases, it's very difficult to attribute business outcomes and business benefit to the work that's done in marketing. Yeah. Do you have uh, any thoughts on that you which Definitely. could share? No, no, you're spot on. I, I have a lot of time for my, I mean, there's a tendency to think accountants are somehow numerically smarter than marketers. It's bloody easy to count money that you've already generated, which is fundamentally what accountants do. Here's a pile of money, count it. It's much harder to predict and project how much money we'll, we will generate. Right. That's not a lack of numeracy. There's a lot more variables there. Yeah. That said, again, the number of marketers say, oh, I'm not very good at maths. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but this isn't very complex maths, but you need to, do, you know, you need to add up a few numbers here and there. It, for me, it comes down to a, a decent funnel and being able to set decent objectives. I mean, the first lesson of good marketing is if you haven't set a measurable objective at the start of the year, you're never going to be able to demonstrate the value of your work. Right. Because A, you haven't got a time machine to go back to show what it was before you did the thing. And B, we don't know what your objectives were in the first place. So for me, it, again, it comes back to training, but if a good marketer will set in place a series of clear objectives with a benchmark, and at the end of that period, usually a year, she'll be able to demonstrate with some degree of success, I did achieve those objectives and this, what, this is what we think it's worth in financial terms. That's not easy. But if you can't do that, especially at a senior level, and your idea of, you know, this is, you know, look at this ad, this is what we've done this year, which is not overstating it sometimes. Mm. I think those people don't deserve to be in even mid-level marketing jobs. You know what I mean? The number of times you ask the question, what's the, what's the strategic objective behind this? Who's the target market and what's the position? And you're met with a blank stare yeah. is stunning. Yeah, it's yeah. stunning. And so you mentioned they don't deserve to be mid-level. Let's talk about senior folk here. Lots of headlines predicting the, the death of the CMO, yeah. uh, the lowest tenure on uh, on the exec boards. We don't really seem to have reached that point yet where no. CMOs aren't invited, but why do you think the role is maligned? The people we put in the position aren't very good about right. half the time. So it's interesting when you work with very senior people. I did it in America recently. We were trying to find some very senior people for a very big thing we were doing, a big event. And I was talking to a large digital group. We sort of sat around a table in Manhattan and I said, well, what about this person or that person? And you got 50% of the time, you got the sort of head shake, which is, you know, the colouring in. Now, they don't re they've got a good profile, but there's, there's nobody home. And so that strike rate at 50%, I think, is a big part of this. We promote people from marketing. And when they get up there to the board, the reaction of the rest of the board is these people fundamentally aren't capable. And right. we have to, it's a sad thing, but we have to acknowledge that. That a grounding in marketing up to a CMO level often, you know, reveals these people to not be very capable. Mm. I think at the other level, I, I am appalled by this ongoing, it's become a cliche, you know, a CMO tenure is, is 18 months, whatever it is. That's because they're not very good. Let's move on, you know. And then this debate about, well, they shouldn't be called chief marketing officers, they should be called... Chief, chief customer officers, chief brand officers. It's like, well, you just stop, <laughs> you absolute muppets. We've had CFOs for 45 years. Never in the history of business has anyone ever gone, you know, not sure CFO is the right title. It should be chief, you know, actuarial uh, officer. <laughs> it's a signal of the, of the superficiality of these people that they think it matters. We, we have this thing CMO. Fortunately, a lot of big companies think it is worthwhile. 
and we're busy trying to rebrand it, you know, because we are the colouring in department. So, mm. yeah, I mean, those debates, I mean, I, I'm opposed to two things in life, panels at conferences, total waste of time, and at panels in conferences, talking about CMO tenure, which always comes up first, and creativity versus research, you know what I mean? They're, they're topics that we occupy ourselves with, Let's just get on with the job. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't care if you're called the magic moonbeam officer. <laughs> if you're on the board and you're in charge of marketing, let's go to work. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a bit of repositioning around, because I've heard the, the term chief growth officer yeah, as well. Yeah, that's another one. I think there's some validity in... Mm. I don't really like the term, right? Yeah. But I think there's some validity in trying to shift marketing away from pure creativity. Or oh, you're right. Right, into actually we need to generate more leads, more opportunities, more sales. Spot on. But my point would be, I totally agree... If that manifests itself in marketers having an open debate about changing the title of a CMO, we've killed ourselves. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're right. I mean, what a CMO should do is focus on growth and see themselves as, you know, the classic, you know, source of incremental growth. But call yourself a CMO and get on with that. Yeah, fair enough. Don't have the debate about, <laughs> I want to change my title, I want to change my title. You know what I mean? I, I know, I mean, I, I don't work on a lot of boards. I'm, I'm not really that senior. But the ones I have attended, I can just imagine the looks on their faces when the CMO wants to change his or her title, it's over, man. It's it's over. Do you know what I mean? Just get on with the job. Get on with it. I like it. You know, prove that you're the chief growth officer by not changing your title, but by fucking growing the brand. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Good advice there. So are there any businesses that fill you with hope that marketing is well understood and fundamental to the strategic direction of the organisation? Yeah, no, look... It, it's easy for us to focus on the sort of averageness of it all. There's a hope right now, I think, with a lot of the B, uh, D to C companies, you know, that formerly... Mm. I met a couple of young lads last week in Australia who are veterans of the D to C mattress business that we've had in all these countries. And they're bright, they were late 20s, they haven't got a day's training of marketing in their lives. They started in that mattress business with, you know, 100% digital spend, brilliantly working out how they could recruit customers and sell mattresses and make money. And then about three or four years in realized, oh, you know what? We need actually to have broader distribution and mass advertising and radio is a good fit and so is outdoor. So they kind of learned marketing from the bottom of the funnel to the top. Yeah. And I see a lot of that in the D2C businesses. I like their energy and their youth, but they've now learned the hard way that without salience and so-called traditional media, their growth is not going to continue. Right. And I really like, I'm enjoying that, partly because it proves that we were right, but also they do bring a different mindset to things, which I really, I mean, normally we, you know, old, old fuckers like me, we started at the top of the funnel and we've gradually appreciated what digital can deliver at the bottom. Here's a bunch of people that started at the bottom and then went, hang on, we need more leads. We've got to go up to the top. Yeah. So I'm enjoying that. I like, I like the rigor of those people and what they bring. I'm still a big fan of P&G and Unilever. I think they've been drinking the Kool-Aid on purpose too much. I think Gillette is the great debacle of our time. I mean, you can't say that the you know, $14 billion, whatever the write down was, was because of that disastrous toxic masculinity campaign. But a significant slice of it, you know, I've never seen a campaign make its target market so angry in my career. And I've never seen such a fall from dominance so quickly. Mm. Like, uh, that razor category was locked up two years ago. Yeah, okay, men were growing beards more, but Gillette was still the king in almost yeah, every yeah. country. It ain't anymore. They've let chinks in their armor all over, and the big reason is they told their consumers, well, you guys need to improve yourselves. Ridiculous. Yeah, Unilever, I think, are, for me, still top tier, along with P&G, in terms of marketing excellence. 
And then we talked about it earlier, but you know, for me, I've really enjoyed what KFC have done globally. Mm. I think that's a brand that's burning on all cylinders. They get positioning, they get menu, they get product, they get advertising ratios just right, they get codes. I, I think that is a, a, a real winning brand now. I think KFC is, is well set for this decade. And chicken has you know, a series of health advantages, has a real advantage when we come to Asia and growth as well, but it's a brand that's been run brilliantly. In your keynote this morning, you talked about yeah. two-speed. Um, the first element is, is kind of essentially building on your brand, That's right. brand recognition. And the second speed is more around kind of tactical campaigns. You got it. So going back to that mattress example, digital kind of first business, are they focused on the kind of campaign activity first? That's what they've been doing for the first four years of their you growth. You got it, that's and it. The and they've come to the other side. So and I think this two, so the two-speed brand plan, the idea is we're learning about long and short. We're learning about mass and targeting. And it's yeah. a way, I mean, that, and they're great in theory at conferences like this, but how do I go back and have a brand plan that allows me to do it? And I've been looking at this for a while with clients, you know? And the first thing I've learned is you have to, and this sounds weird, but you have to arbitrarily agree the split of money at the start. Because they're, they're almost different. They are different systems. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So the first thing you have to do with a, what I would call a two-speed brand plan is decide I'm going to be able to devote 40% of my budget to long-term brand building, emotional, mass-marketed, and I'm putting that down that path. And the other 60%, which is you know, the, the opposite of what Field and Burnett would suggest, but that's ideal, not practical often, mm -hmm. will go on a whole series of targeted campaigns at different segments at different times. So you start with the same brand plan, which is here's my diagnosis of the overall brand, here's the segmentation for the market. But as you say, the first bit is you go, right, I'm gonna now say, this is my brand positioning to everyone. These are my codes. These are my objectives based on the brand tracking. So I'm gonna increase consideration. I'm gonna increase the perception that we are ahead of the curve or sexy or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then these are the tactics that will deliver that. And the crucial point is that's aimed at everyone in the category. Yeah. That only happens once. That's a single set of slides, and that's the, that's the proposal there for the 40%. On the other side, though, when you get the targeted stuff, you could be talking 5, 10, 15 different legs now that are saying, right, for this target segment, I'm going to offer them this product offer versus these competitors, and I've got a very specific commercial opportunity. Now, here's my second target. And then you bring it all together at the end with a budget where the short is paying for the long. And if you study brands carefully, they've been doing this without fancy people like me calling it two speed. My favorite campaign when Gillette knew what they were doing, a brilliant campaign, just as the GFC was coming in, Gillette were trying to get more of their customers to upgrade from Mac 3 to Sensor, right? right. More profitable razor. Because they're finding the Mac 3 guys were actually trading back to a private label razor. So they're trying to get them up. So there was a very particular segment they went after, which was in, in the state of Texas, for example. He's a Dallas Cowboys fan. He buys his Mac 3 in Walmart, but he's prepared to trade up if you can give him a reason to trade up. That's a very tight mm. target, right? And they created a limited edition Dallas Cowboys version of the Sensor. They marketed it to them at the start of the, of the football season in America. And they got, you know, something like an extra 30% of those Mac 3 users to trade up. Okay. That's one of, I would guess, 20 or 30 different short-term activations going on in that Gillette brand plan. Remembering that they're also spending a fortune on Tiger Woods and Roger Federer 
big TVCs that don't have a short-term offer. They're just building the brand of masculinity, achievement, and everything else. So that's a nice example of that, how that two-speed system yeah, works. Yeah. I'm dropping an atomic bomb with my long-term brand building strategy. I'm trying to get everyone to know I'm this, this, and this. Codify it, saliency, yeah. stand for this. And then I'm harvesting it with 10, 12, 15 different targeted campaigns through the year, which are all about making money. And that's, that's where I'm seeing brands fall down at the moment. A lot of them are good at the long, but when it comes to short, I am making money. The whole point of this thing is uh, this is an entrepreneurial opportunity. With those Gillette boys, they were like, how can I get as many of these Texans to trade up and it's worth $12 million per week, you know what I mean, to get that process happening. That's the two speed we're looking for. In terms of that 60-40 split and the focus on multiple campaigns, I've heard uh, many people talking, including myself, on agile marketing. Yeah. Is that all hype or is that, uh, is that a real thing? I think the only place you, you can allow it, in my experience, is with tactics. So when it comes to tactics, I think agility has a lot to, a lot to say for itself. Because mm. what you're saying is, I'm testing and learning, this thing isn't working. But if we move it to over here or we tweak this, we're getting a better result. And I, I, you've got to have a lot of time for that. Where I think agility falls down as you, as you move more upstream into strategy is agility becomes an excuse for not having a strategy. Right. And again, it, it is possible to test and learn, and I do get that, but it's rare you actually see that happening. So purely for a practical reason, I would always say to you, I want strategy to be a 12-month plan. I'd like to have my tactics laid out, but I'll, I'll certainly humor more agility there as we, as we learn how this goes and yeah. we, we pivot a little bit. But what I don't want is in the middle of a year or whatever the planning period is, deciding that we're going to change this or change that. I think agility happens on an annual basis with strategy. At the end of the year, or if you plan in a six-month period, six months, but usually a year, that's the time to go, right, this works, this doesn't work, let's change that, let's learn. You've got to give strategy time to play out. Yeah. And it's very rare strategy is even a 12-month thing. You know what I mean? It really is a four, five, six-year timeline with 12-month increments. So at the strategy level, I think agility is being able to pivot year to year. At the tactical level, sure, you, you learn in the field. I get that. But I think when I hear agility applied to strategy, you know, I don't have a strategy because we've got agile thinking and all that. I know how that ends and it doesn't end well. Kind of thinking about a comment you made earlier about many of the CMOs being kind of un underqualified for their, yeah. for their role. Which marketing skill do you think is most under-resourced or underrated across the marketing function? I think it's strategy and strategic thinking. I think it's the ability to make strategic choices and stick to them. Yeah, and it, it, you know, that isn't something that is hard to teach. I think it's something you have to learn. And the value of making choices and sticking to the choices and holding the wheel, I'd say that's the one you look for. A lot of CMOs, at least in my experience of them, they're very underconfident of their own skills. Mm. And what that results in is constantly moving the wheel as they think, well, this might not work and this might work. You know, we forget now because it was so long ago. Terry Leahy was a CMO. Yeah. Mm. I still think Lee's probably, and he very quickly became CEO. So we kind of, we've forgotten that period where Lee fixed mm. Tesco and made Tesco what it is today. I think he's the model in the sense that Terry kept it simple. He made a series of choices and he just held the wheel. And I think the skill I've learned from the senior, senior people I've worked with is, I believe that they know we're going in the right direction. I know they're holding the wheel. The reality is, I don't think they know themselves, but they're never going to move that wheel. And I think that's the thing more CMOs need. You know, 
we're talking earlier about this, this course I teach where we have a simulation at the end of the course and your grade is your performance in the simulation. One of the things you learn from the simulation is even if you don't have the, the people that do best in the, in the brand simulation have a strategy, not necessarily the best one, but they play it out for the five years of the sim and they don't move. Yeah. Everyone that fails is going, oh, this isn't working, we'll do that instead in the middle. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a great lesson to teach marketers, which is you don't have to, there's no such thing as a perfect strategy, but once you've made your call, you hold the bloody wheel and you convince everyone this is the right way to go. Even though you must have a few sleepless nights, you know, there's a lot of bollocks about leadership. Leadership is about making choices and convincing everyone these are the right choices and then them turning out to be pretty good, right? Great. So, uh, so I see that from a CMO perspective, holding the wheel, yeah. really firm. What about the rest of the marketing department? Is it resourced correctly? You hear about the upcoming uh, role of the data scientist yeah. and what's the balance there? It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, it depends I mean, how it's all arranged. I, I really like, the teams I've worked with across the years have all been different shapes and sizes, right? I don't think there's one size. I think where you do see a lot of success is having a brand planning process that fits the organization. You know what I mean? Some kind of sequence that says, develop a plan, get it approved, execute it, review, learn, pivot another year. That's as broad as I would go. Now, what the team looks like and how, you know, it's, it's so variant there. But I think if you want to ask me, what's the one thing I want in a marketing group? It's an organized brand planning season. And the key thing for me is learnings at the end. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I used to train companies all over the world in marketing and then they go and do their, I'm working with a big jam company in America. And we're going to have a brand planning season. And the most we're going to train them first. Then they're going to have proper brand plans and execute. The most important thing is at the end, they're going to come back and present why they did or didn't hit their targets. There's no more training. They have to become their own professor then and go, you know what I did wrong? I didn't do that and we should have done more of that. And if you see that in a marketer in their sort of early 30s with a bit of brand responsibility, you know you've got a winner. Because he or she is going to teach themselves and tighten the wheel each year. Bad brand management, bad marketing is you go in a room, you turn off all the lights and you try and hit a target with a gun. And then you come out and you have a look and you see you haven't hit anything. And you go, right, send me back in there, <laughs> turn the lights off, I'll have another go. Learning, you know what I mean? Learning each year and getting better and just learning to just tighten things, that's the signal of a good brand team. We're going to get, you know what I mean? Incrementally learning what works and what doesn't work, tightening the knot. Yeah. That's something that can be done. You know what I mean? And I think that's the one thing you really want the team to have. Sage advice. I mean, you talk about brand planning. Do you think every company can have a, a brand purpose? Or is this something that should be reserved for those who can actually demonstrate the truth behind the claims? I'm not opposed to brand purpose. I'm opposed to this school of thought, which is very common at the moment, which is brand purpose always works. Brand purpose is, good, is better than anything else. There's no absolutes in marketing, right? I think brand purpose has, has one option um, in terms of positioning, but there are many others. And I don't really care what it's called, right? Brand values, brand DNA, brand position, brand purpose. The thing that I don't like about brand purpose is it can take us away from the point of positioning a brand, which is whenever I work with a client, I say, right, there's a customer walking down the street. You've got three brain cells, maybe three, if you're lucky. <laughs> What are the three words you want to drop in them brain cells? Write those down. Okay, that's your position. Done. See what I mean? We get into the positioning stage in these companies and we're off with the fairies. We're writing, you know, giant slogans and purpose-filled mantras. We're creating triangles with 17 levels. Missing the point. Missing the fucking point completely. 
What are the three things you want the customer to think of when they think of your brand? Write them down, done. Now, if you want them to think that we are, our purpose is to save X, great. As long as it passes the three Cs, so to your point, the company can deliver on it. Yeah. The customer actually wants it, really wants it, and will pay for it. Not just in a bit of research, would you like a company that protects the environment or one that doesn't? Oh, I'll take the one that does. Well, yeah, of course. Would you pay an extra 25 cents right. for that? And in research, it's surprising how many times that's yeah. not the case. So can the company deliver it? Does the customer want it? And can I do it better than the competitors or is everyone else going to jump in? Purpose doesn't invalidate the need to still strategically position. Yeah. And if you look at when it's done well, and look, I give Unilever a lot of shit because they're often, you know, they're, they're away with it a lot of the time. They've gone a bit bananas, you know. Chocolate is about blending everyone together. No, it's not, right? But to be fair to Unilever, they are walking the walk on tax. And my point to every other company except Unilever is you can't talk to me about purpose when your practices on tax are abysmal. Right. You know what I mean? It's um, Cadbury and my bet noir at the moment, a fine, fine company. But under Mondelez, they don't pay any tax in the UK. Don't talk to me about old people not being able to you know, have company and social and making that your purpose. If that's your purpose, pay your tax, right. the 40 million pounds you approximately should have paid that you've legally not paid, very legal, let me make that clear, because we could spend that on all people's homes and looking after these people. You see what I mean? Like, it, it, we've never lived in a, least, in a less purposeful town. You know, right. we're living in the world's, you know, in the last certainly 150 years, the least purposeful era. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you look at the Cadbury family 100 years ago, that was purpose. Building houses in Bourneville for their people so they could live a better standard of life and bearing that cost, that was purpose. Didn't talk about it, just did it. So I, I struggle at the moment with where we are as a country and where companies are. You know, every day we see things that are purposeless. You know, the, the rate of tax in America for the first time, the super rich pay less as a proportion of their income than the poor in, in America. Warren Buffett pays less than his secretary as a proportion of his income. It's madness, right? Absolute madness. So, you know, I question whether if, we're, if everything's so purposeful, why are we living in such horrendous times, yeah, yeah. you know? So, yeah, I think there, there are shining lights that come across. Ben and Jerry's under Unilever is a great success. And, you know, you've got to respect what they've done. Back to KFC. I mean, I think what they're trying to do with animal standards for chickens is kind of impressive as well. So there is some hope, right? There are some companies. I just don't think they necessarily need to talk about it. Just get on and do it is always the night. I mean, Patagonia do so many amazing things, but they don't like to talk about it. Yeah. You know, which I think is the ultimate signal of it. They just get on with just it. Just get on with it. Mark, you've been in marketing for a while now. 30 years. I was just working out, James. It's 30 years since I started my undergraduate degree in marketing. Not that I was doing much work back then, but officially it's three <laughs> decades, mate. Fantastic. So you've got a lot of wisdom to share with people. What advice would you give to someone thinking about a career in marketing? Oh, first of all, do it. It remains, it's less sexy than it was when I was doing it in the 80s. Everyone wanted to be in advertising and marketing back then. It's certainly less attractive now than tech and other things. Do it. It's a lovely, it's a lovely place to work because it's infinitely challenging to work with customers. And it is the place between creativity and analysis and strategy. If you're, a, if you're someone at school, that, like I was, that was never really wedded to maths or English or science, I kind of liked them all a little bit. It was mm. definitely the right... It's, a, it's, it's, it's one for... It's a decathlete's topic, you know what I mean? Daley Thompson wouldn't have won any gold medals <laughs> in any one subject, but he was great at everything. And I think if you're a decathlete, it is a great place to do a bit of science 
a bit of strategy and a bit of creativity together. And the best advice is, you know, it's still, you know, I'd say you have to add Google uh, and Amazon to the list, but still the Unilever, P&G, Tesco, Amazon graduate programs, they're still going to be the place that will breed the marketing leaders in 20 years' time. They're still coming out of there. You know what yeah. I mean? You can still see a quality. P&G people are still brilliantly trained. You know yeah. what I mean? They really yeah. are still top door. But I think we are adding Amazon, LinkedIn to some degree. You know, Google are producing now the next generation of marketing leaders. So if you're in your 20s, head there. Retail remains for me the great place to work because retail is often the best place to start your marketing career. You get to see all parts of the business. You get lots of responsibility early and you learn customer orientation. So you talk about training there. I know uh, some colleagues at Engine who've completed the mini MBA Yeah, that's right. We've got a few of them, yeah. Yeah. Was there a tipping point that made you think, this is something you know I really have to do, or was it a slow burn decision to launch the program? That's a good question. Um, um, it's a really, it's been the great triumph of my life in a weird way. So, what to say? So, I've been teaching uh, for about twenty-five years now, in doctoral and then as an assistant associate professor, always MBA students. And it just occurred to me that it was there were so many marketers that wanted, as we've talked about it here, more training in marketing that didn't have it. You know, mm. half of the marketers out there have no formal training in marketing. They clearly weren't going to go back to school and spend a hundred grand on an MBA. And you could see that opportunity was there. And at the same time, I'm a part-time professor now. I'm what's called an adjunct professor. So I still teach at the University of Melbourne, but I'm not officially a part of their system. So I can do whatever I like. So if you're a full-time professor, they'd stop you doing this because they, you know, they'd see it as cannibalizing the MBA. So I thought there's a huge demand and I could do this. And I've taught for 20 odd years. I know, you know, I know how to teach a good class, but you've only ever got 100 people in your class. And I kind of twisted Marketing Week's arm to do it. They didn't want to do it to begin with. And my other thought was, we, we won't lose any money if we do it. You know what I mean? It'll be, a, it'll be time that we'll lose. What's happened? So we've had, we're on our 7,000th student now. We've done 7,000 students. Congratulations. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really important thing. And what we're discovering is a couple of things. It's certainly been, so it costs about, in English pounds, it's about 1,200 quid for the course. So it's basically my MIT course or London Business School course, core course in marketing that normally we teach in 12 weeks, taught 100% online. But in real terms, that would cost you four or five grand as part of your MBA. We're charging 1,200 quid. So we knew it'd be cheaper. And I also knew it was gonna be more convenient because we do digital classes, 100% online. So you can do it on your phone or on your computer or at work or whatever else. It's much more accessible. Mm. Those two things definitely turned out to be true. The thing that has upset me and has really made my last couple of years very difficult is that it was clear to me very soon after we started it that the marketers who did the mini MBA 100% online were learning more than the ones I was teaching in the classroom. I was not expecting that. That blew my mind. Why was that? So it, if you think about it, if we hadn't invented teaching and we just started today saying, how are we going to train marketers? And I said to you, right, I can do 12 green screen, really well done classes, going around the world, showing examples, PDF readings, the students can do it in their own time, commuting at work, in bed at night, weekends, whatever suits them. Yeah. And then they do an online exam. Or we can pull them into a classroom with 100 other people, Monday to Friday, which is how I do it at business school, and we start at 9 o'clock, finish at 5 o'clock for five concurrent days. And I shout at them eight hours a day with 99 other people in a room, and then they do an exam. You'd say, well, obviously, that model in the classroom, that's not as good, right? It isn't as good. It's stupid. Mm. Everyone drives... 
to a lecture theatre. I mean, apart from the driving part, it's a 16th century model of communication. And then I shout at them and put things on a whiteboard, and that's how they learn. So I should have realised, but it was a big surprise that, yeah, the problem with digital training is it's done by people who aren't any good at training. So as a real professor who's taught in the top business schools, I have the material. A lot of these people that fancy themselves as doing it can't teach because they're not professors. It sounds obvious, but you need to know your shit to teach good marketers. And then the way they do it is really poor. Mm. So I'll, I, what I would describe as being Al-Qaeda-style videos of you know someone raving on a screen in, a, in, a, in an office, very low quality. Provided you get past that, I mean, our net promoter score is nearly plus 80. Yeah, across mm. 7,000 students. It's going to change the world of teaching, I think. And I, I'm at a point now where I'm struggling to teach in a classroom because for the first time I don't believe in it. I can see what digital does. Yeah. I look at every one of the 100 people in the classroom and I think I'd rather you spent half as much money and did it online because I know you would learn more than this. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a real, it's confronting for me because you teach, you know, you teach for money and status and all that, but you mostly teach to, to teach students. Yeah. And if I know every one of them in that room should really just, you know, log on and go and do the modules because it would be better for them, it makes my life, it's been very hard the last year or so, I'm questioning it. And when I see pictures of people teaching, I think, hmm. It, it doesn't make sense to me anymore. How's the school in Melbourne kind of reacting to it? Oh, look, they've been very good. They've, whenever I became an adjunct professor, it does, it, you're more independent. And they've been very good with me over the years. I've got to give them credit. I've been teaching there 15 years off and on. They give me a lot of rope. And the argument I made to them, and they couldn't have stopped me anyway, was you're not going to lose any student who would have done a full MBA not coming to Melbourne because they can get my one on... It's only the marketing part of the MBA, right? There's another 12 courses. Yeah. And I said to them, and it turned out to be true, you'll get two or three each year that will do the course in Australia and then we'll say, I love this, I want to go on and do my MBA. And that has happened. So it's actually, and they've realised it, they've got a little bit of upside and not, okay. not any downside. I think business schools will have a growing problem in the, in the decade ahead. And I think they know it, but I think they're very badly placed to respond. Mark, a slightly riskier question here as we're kind of coming to a close. You're known for your honest views. And this is a risky question given that I work for Engine. Mm-hmm. Do people really hate ads? And if so, what do we need to do to engage with our audiences? Well, the answer is yes, they do. Advertising people don't hate ads. But if you gave the average consumer a chance to remove advertising from their media they would remove it. Now, news media is a little bit of an exception. Magazines, they, they actually do like a bit of that. But most of the media forms, sure, it's a distraction. And, I, you know, the data is, you know, it, it depends how you ask the question. But that's not a bad thing to accept that people hate ads because it reminds you then to make advertising useful and to make it work within the life of the customer. You know, the problem we have in, in agencies is we've started to believe that a great ad. People have a favourite ad and they love ads. Their favourite ad was from 1986. They could have, you know, the last 30 years they could have lived without. The more we can acknowledge that advertising isn't welcome, the more we'll build better ads. You know what I mean? That do have a little bit more uh, ability to engage customers. The minute we think people love ads, we start making ads that people hate even more. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. And we're, you know, we're a unique medium because we're the non-welcomed medium. Yeah. We're the medium that gets in the way of the medium they chose to watch. It's just realistic to accept that and then to work around it. But I think it's a super important question because if you look at the streaming wars that are going to happen next year, it will kill and reduce a lot of the TV viewing that's going on for free to air. 
But that will probably be the only place where we'll be able to put advertising because most of the streaming stuff will be ad-free. Right. So it really does, it will, I think, elevate that sensitivity to, oh, I hate ads even more because they'll start to get used. In, in the old days, in the 80s, with the exception of BBC, you kind of accepted that if you were watching commercial TV, you would get an ad break. The more we start getting, and I've seen it in Australia already, we're starting to do program breaks where we say in, back in 60 seconds because we know that consumers can watch an hour-long program without ads. They're used to it now, thanks to Netflix. And if we show them 60 seconds, they know not to go out of the room because we'll be back shortly, so we can slot an ad in there. My favorite ad buy of all time is the cricket in Australia. SBS has the cricket, or had the cricket in Australia. We put an ad in between each over during the ashes, and consumers like that. Because if you're know, watching the cricket, you know, have a few beers, the ad is a good signal that the over's you know, gonna going to turn over you got a minute of a guy rubbing the ball on his trousers there's nothing you're not missing anything and it was nice to get a nicely targeted ad so I think it teaches us that the pod and the interruption model may not be the best approach but we have to think more innovatively about how do I deliver a targeted message in a less annoying way final question what is it about working in marketing that really makes you tick and if you could do it all again do you think you'd end up here Oh, the latter question, yeah. I, I always like marketing and I can't explain why. I mean, if you, you know, the 80s, it wasn't a really easy career path, you know? So, yeah, I, no regrets. I, I don't regret for a second wanting to do marketing. I think what it is that, that makes it so attractive is partly the brands and the stories of the brands and being able to be involved in a few of these brands for a few years on these long journeys, you know, working on Dom Perignon. It's just an honour, you know what I mean? To work on the positioning of Dom Perignon. And, I, I, you know, occasionally I can go around, like we go past the Sephora window and you go, you know, I was part of the team that did that. You know what I mean? It's, it, it's a great way to influence important things in a small way, you know? Yeah. That's, that, that part will never dissipate. You work on a big brand, you feel, you know, pressure in a good way. And, but then the, the contrast is you've got these consumers that don't give a shit. So getting them to fall in love with these great brands, do you know what I mean, is the other part of it that keeps you sharp. You're always trying to recruit new consumers, so you can't fall in love with it too much. And I think that's the thing that's so attractive. It's, you look at Dom Perignon, when we worked on it, it was about 10 years ago. We already had, depending on how you count it, about 350 years of history. But our big challenge was, how do we get 22-year-olds in a nightclub in Shenzhen to think that this is not just an icon, but something they want to drink on a Saturday night. Right. So you've always got that kind of eternal brand with a new generation of customers always coming through. So it's a nice balance, you know what I mean, of ancient brands that really have proper gravitas and current challenges. And I love that. I think that's yeah. the best thing about it. It's not a function that stands still for any time. It can't. Well, you know, right? You can't. You know, you know the rule that applies this year. That's why I think marketing science is a lot of nonsense. Because the minute we got a rule that worked and we started using it, the customer reflexively would look for something else. Do you know what I mean? It, it, the wheel always turns, and I like that. I think that's great, you know? Fantastic. Mark, thank you for your time today. My pleasure, uh, James. It's been brilliant. We'll let you get on with your incredibly busy day, and we'll look forward to hearing you speak later on. Maybe. I have no idea. I just follow. There's a guy called Sam who follows around and just tells me what to do. I got off a plane this morning at 5.30, <laughs> and I got a text message a second after my ass hit the ground was Sam saying you need to be have you got a ticket for this I'm like no what is this ticket so I just follow Sam around everyone needs a Sam in your life you, do, um, you definitely do I'm James Goldhill thank you for listening to this episode of the Engine Presents podcast I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did don't forget to subscribe we have an exciting schedule of future guests you won't want to miss them thank you thanks mate